Pray for those guys. Well, we come now to the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us, we are working our way verse by verse through this precious Gospel. We arrived this morning at a great little portion of Scripture. And so I want to invite you to turn with me there to John chapter 3. And we'll pick up reading in verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on Him. Are we good there? We're okay with the sound? You guys can all hear me? Yep. I got a lot of feedback coming back at me this way, but I can, I can live with that, but just let you know that. Um, let's pray. Father, we come before you now and give you great thanks for this opportunity to be in your word. We do believe that when the Bible speaks, you speak through your written revelation to us and we are so grateful for it. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God and pray that he would guide us and lead us into all truth. And we come often corporately with weeks, the weeks burdens, the weak worries. We come confessing our own sin, our need for you. We come acknowledging that 
corporate worship, the assembly of the saints is an expression of not only our love for you, but your love for us through those means that you have instituted, the means of grace. And so, Lord, they're ordinary, but they accomplish an extraordinary work because you work in and through them for our good and your glory. And so we pray that you'd give us attentive hearts and minds, soft hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You'll notice that our passage of consideration this morning moves on and has left off from the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, which was the first 15 verses of John chapter 3, regarding sovereign regeneration. And also, verses 16 to 21, those theological remarks that the Apostle John makes on that conversation, which is what we looked at, as I said, in verses 16 to 21. Now things move back into narrative again, as we pick up in verse 22. You'll notice that verse 25 mentions purification. As we lift off back into narrative again, I do want to show you something as we begin. You'll recall that part of our journey through John included obviously chapter 2. And chapter 2 began with the wedding at Cana. And what was it that was so vital about that wedding? I don't expect you to immediately remember this, but it was this. That Jesus, by performing the miraculous act of having water filled to the brim in purification pots, not drinking pots, and changing that water into wine was a revealing preview of His glory. That the act of changing water into wine in purification pots was serving as a parable to illustrate what his hour of redemption on the cross would look like. In that he will take all the purification obligations required by Jewish law and exchange them for the perfect and final way of purifying the soul once and for all. And so Jesus is greater than purification laws. Then as we kept moving from the wedding in chapter 2, which is at the first part of that, we saw in the second part of chapter 2, Jesus clearing out the temple. And the lesson there, what was that? Well, the temple was corrupted. The temple was limited and restricted in the sense that one person, once a year, only the high priest could go in. There wasn't access for everyone. It only had a limited amount of things that it could accomplish. But Jesus comes, what did he do? He cursed it and he closed it as he cleansed it with a whip. And so Jesus is greater than the temple. For in him and in him alone is full and lasting access to God. Then in John chapter 3, 
the very beginning, as the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, he comes, Jesus explains to him that it is not the works of the law that save a person and then grant that person entry into the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Nicodemus was teaching the nation. That was the doctrine of Israel, and it still to this day is the doctrine of the nation of Israel. But Jesus says that entry into the kingdom of God is based solely on regeneration. The new birth. The new birth, which is not something that you do. You remember? The new birth is something that is done to you. And so regeneration, the new birth, precedes belief to the glory of God. And so Jesus there is showing us in that beginning of John chapter 3 that his death ushers in something far greater. You remember At the very end of the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus mentions Moses. And he mentions the snake being lifted up. And so Jesus is showing us that his death ushers in something far greater than the snake that was lifted up in Moses' day. But that in his lifting up, he purchases all the blessings of the new covenant that is far superior To the old covenant. And we receive those blessings. By faith. By trust. Alone. That is how one is freely and fully. Pardoned. And adopted. And so Jesus comes in fulfillment. Of those promises. Of old. About new covenant. Regeneration. And so the Apostle John is showing us all through this gospel that Jesus is greater. Greater than anything that Judaism can offer. And obviously, therefore, greater than anything that any religion or philosophy can offer. And so as we keep moving in this gospel, we're going to continually see the Apostle John Present Jesus in all his majestic and superior glory. A glory you remember to behold. John chapter 1 verse 14. Which is what? The lens by which we must view this entire gospel. The word became flesh. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth. In our passage this morning, in verses 22 to 36 of John 3, we're going to be offered with three different displays. I give you a fair warning, we won't get to the third one this morning. But three displays, we'll see first, for those of you taking notes, in verses 22 to 26, we'll see first a display of ambition. A display of ambition. Then second... In verses 27 to verse 30, we'll see a display of humility. And then third, in a Lord's day to come, Lord willing, in verses 31 to 36, we'll then see a display of 
divinity. So a display of ambition, a display of humility, and then a display of divinity. As we go all out through this, there'll be some takeaway lessons for us. And we pray some further glory to behold. And so let's jump right in to verses 22 to 26 first, where we see, as I said, a display of ambition. Look at verse 22. After these things. After these things. What things? If it just said, after the conversation with Nicodemus, then that's that. But it says things, plural. And so this is referring to those three events I just made mention of before. The wedding in the temple. Sorry, the wedding and the temple. And the back and forth with Nicodemus. Now, the more astute students of the Bible among us may notice that in verse 22, it says that Jesus and his disciples, the twelve, it says, came into the land of Judea, Judea, which is Jerusalem. But they may notice that in John chapter 2, verse 23, it says that Jesus and his disciples were already in Jerusalem. Already in Judea. Well, the answer to that little problem is answered by the fact that the word for land there is the Greek word for territory or countryside. And so Jesus and his disciples, they were in Judea, they were in Jerusalem, but they're in the city. And now they head out into the countryside. They're out of the city area and they're now in the rural parts of Judea. And it's out there... That we are then presented with two groups. And what are those two groups doing? Those two groups are both performing baptisms. End of verse 22. And they were spending time with them and baptizing. Verse 23 tells us, John was also baptizing. John the Baptist. One thing to make clear is that verse 22 makes it sound like Jesus was baptizing. Look, a plain reading of verse 22 says, and he was spending time with them and baptizing. But he wasn't. He wasn't. Look over at verse 2 of John chapter 4. In parentheses. Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. This is all unique to John's gospel. It's unique in the sense that the other gospels, Matthew and Mark primarily, they mention Jesus being baptized, but only John mentions Jesus and his disciples doing baptism, with obviously that clarification that Jesus himself wasn't actually baptizing. I, I immediately... As a aside, as an aside, take this as a quick little reminder that what we do represents Jesus, right? Where we go in his name, he goes there too. What we do in his name, he does too. But anyway, look at that little phrase in verse 22. I love it. Because what, what does it say Jesus was doing? It says, he was there. 
Because we immediately run, our, our minds immediately run to the, the whole notion of baptism. But look what it says. He was spending time with them. We miss that if we're not careful. I really like that. In fact, the Greek word for spending time there is the word that takes on the idea of cutting out a very good amount of time. A lengthy amount of time. Some say months. Weeks or even a month or even longer. And so this is a little discipleship training retreat. No doubt Jesus is revealing himself and his true self to the twelve. And in that time, it's here that John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of Jesus now intersect. And both have disciples with them. And they're all together in the same geographical location and they're baptizing. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 tells us that Jesus had had been preaching repentance in the lead up to this. And so those who had heard him preach about the kingdom and how entry into the kingdom was not about doing the works of the law, but by believing and trusting, they come out to hear him and they come out to be baptized by him, by his disciples. We know too that John the Baptist was preaching the same. And those who heard him came out to be baptized as well. Two groups. Look at verse 24. It says John had not yet been thrown into prison. That is not a statement of the obvious. What do you mean? Well, of course John was baptizing because he was not yet in prison. It's not a statement of the obvious. God gives us key things in his word. It's serving as a time stamp to tell us when all this was occurring with the two groups. And the time stamp is this. Along this gospel narrative timeline, it was that this was occurring after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, 40 days, earning our righteousness, by not using his divinity to turn the bread into a stone. Because if he did that, we wouldn't what? Have a savior like us. A substitute like us. We would have one unlike us. After Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, this took place. But it also took place, obviously, before John the Baptist finds himself in prison. Why did John the Baptist find himself in prison? He was preaching righteousness to the politicians. All the other Gospels make no mention of what occurred here in our passage today. This is unique. But anyway, look what happens now with these two groups. Verse 25, look there. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew. Some of your translations will have Jews, but it's a singular, it's Jew. 
a single Jew, about purification. The same word for purification or washings here is the exact same word used for purification to describe the pots that Jesus used with the wine at the wedding. We can only really surmise or guess what this little debate was about in verse 25. But what we can see that whatever it was about, it did lead to the disciples of John the Baptist becoming envious. Look at verse 26. And they, that's the disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. I did my best to imagine what it was like. So it could have maybe gone down like this. A Jew comes and he questions the practice of the baptism that is before him of John's disciples. And because the masses were moving from their practice to that of Jesus' practice, even though we know that the mode and the method and the purpose of those baptisms were the same, but because this Jew is more aligned with the traditional Jewish practice where they would do things like bathe in cold water and, and other different things. He kind of stirs up these people before him, John's people, and says, your purification practices are silly. And I can show you they're silly because, look, everyone is, all of them are going down there. That's perhaps how it played out. And so John's disciples then say what they say in verse 26. Look, down there, John, all of them are going to him. There is envy in that statement. I don't want you to miss it. There is resentment in their words. There is a growing jealousy in their heart. You say, how do you know that? Well, did you see in verse 26 that they could not even bring themselves to use Jesus' name? Look again. Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. They, they knew his name. Think about it. When John the Baptist arrived on the scene as the forerunner, to the Messiah, Jesus, we read in Scripture, Mark chapter 1, verse 5, that all those in Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to see John the Baptist. And so these disciples were enjoying the esteem, they were enjoying the notoriety, they were certainly enjoying the regard, they were receiving, they were loving all that, and now it's beginning to be taken away. They were once the well-known and well-loved disciples. And now, it was beginning to be taken away. And so what rises up in them is ambition. Namely, selfish ambition. But if you think about it, verse 23 tells us that people will, were still coming to them. 
and being baptized. It wasn't as though everything had ceased. But what had no doubt occurred in the hearts of these disciples was a failure to remain committed to the primary task. And what I mean by that is that they were disciples of the one who came very clearly and very loudly as the forerunner to Jesus. Who made it clear to them that their ministry was not about them. And pointing people to them. But about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. But such is the lure of pride. Such is the lure of jealousy. We, we love to have, don't we, at times, our own applaud. We love at times to have our own esteem and a reputation. And when that kind of heart attitude sets in and takes root, evidenced by beginning to no longer rejoice in the life and ministry of others, as we seek our own praise and not the praise of others, it can cause chaos in the life of a person and it can cause chaos in the life of a church. James chapter 3 verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Strong words. There is disorder in the body and every evil thing in the body when jealousy reigns and selfish ambition reigns. And so this really is a war of worship in the heart, right? That's what this is about. A seeking of treasure. And seeking of lasting satisfaction in the wrong place. You know, the Puritans were sometimes asked the question, why does God not use so-and-so, a believer? And they would answer, often, because some people have two spirits in them. The spirit of God and yet too much of the spirit of self. You see, when self is from where we draw our satisfaction from, as we crave attention, as we crave the applaud for what we do, that grieves the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who indwells each of us individually, and it grieves the body of Christ of which we are members of collectively. And sometimes, in God's providence, we have things that occur to us like what occurred to these disciples of John as this Jew approached them. We have things that show us where our treasure is. A word from a loved one. A circumstance that comes. Whether it's a Jew or no matter who. We have things that expose our hearts. 
That's in the kindness of God. We need to rid our hearts of envy and jealousy and selfish ambition. God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, provided a remedy to this in Philippians chapter 2, very familiar, verses 1 through 3. He said this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then what does the Apostle Paul do after that? He, he then goes on to show how Jesus is the greatest example of that. In that being God in perfection with every reason from an earthly perspective to boast of his greatness. Instead, took on a human nature and became a humble servant, obedient. And then in doing so, the Father exalted him with the name above every other name. And so the first thing we see here is a display of ambition by the disciples of John the Baptist. There was a real problem. A real problem in that they were seeing others as competitors. And ministry for them was beginning to be made up of contestants. And all that happens. When. Sorry, when that happens. All that happens is a loss of joy for everyone in the body. But what we see next is both remarkable and helpful because it shows us how to inject joy into everyone in the body. We see now, number two, a display of humility in verses 27 to 30. You see, John the Baptist does not have what his disciples did at the time. They were becoming and were resentful in their soul, whereas John was restful in his. You know, when you're restless in your soul, you sometimes say things that don't need to be said, you do things that don't need to be done, and you think things that don't need to be thought. When you're restless. When you're insecure. John is restful and secure here. Look at verse 27. John answered them and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. In Luke chapter 7 verse 28, Jesus said, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. 
And I think right here in verse 27 is part of the reason why. He totally gets it. He had truly lived with the idea that life and ministry was not about him. And that the ministry and the life he did have was a gift. Not a divine right. He understood at the heart level that he did not dictate the length of his life and his ministry. Nor the breadth of his life and his ministry. He recognized that it was not for him to do that. Instead, he recognized that he received his orders for life and ministry from the king. And when the king said, it's time to fade out. Having accomplished the work that I gave you as king to your charge, John the Baptist was fine with it. Like, truly fine with it. Fine with it because he was someone who had superpowers? Or fine with it because he was a super spiritual giant who did not have struggles with his own pride or his own flesh? No. But because... He not only had an apprehension of the sovereignty of God, he had an appropriation of the sovereignty of God. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven, from God the Father. He truly understood, not just with his head alone, but with his heart of hearts. And I really do hate to dichotomize the head and the heart unnecessarily. Because it's so often done in such a terrible way. In that the head knowledge is bad, but the heart feelings are good. Don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. Jesus is doctrine. And so I hate to unnecessarily... Divide those, but here is a necessary way. Because remember, it is mind, affections, will, actions, right? You know this. The paradigm of the Christian life is mind, will, sorry, mind, affections, will, actions. Knowledge in the mind of who God is leads to an inflamed heart, affections. Those affections then drive the will, and the will then determines our actions. We do not degrade or negate the mind. You cannot love what you do not know. And the more you know God, which is by the mind, the more you love Him. But, there is a necessary distinction to make between apprehension with the mind and appropriation with the heart and soul. Regarding the sovereignty of God. You see this, don't you, in the most challenging times? It's one thing to read or have as your creed or give lip service to the words, God is all sovereign. 
It's quite another to walk through life-altering events and live out the fact that God is sovereign. Because as I do that, I, I look out and I know what you walk through. And many of you have appropriated that. John is doing the latter here. He has not only apprehended God's sovereignty, he has appropriated it. John is restful. He's restful in his life and in his ministry. And understand this, life is not disconnected from ministry. You cannot split the two in half. Your ministry, and we all have one believer, is not disconnected from your life. John knew that the reason for which he was put on this earth alive, his life, was the pointing of people to Jesus Christ. And he knew that was beginning to wind up. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. And if people were now moving from flocking to him and he, his level of influence was beginning to diminish, they were beginning to flock to Messiah Jesus who was down the river a little bit, the River Jordan... He saw that as from the Father. For nothing that occurs in life and ministry is outside the Father's hand. Because the Father willed it so. And John knew this. But his disciples didn't. And these are words of strong reproof for them. And they are words of strong reproof for us. Reproof being information that comes to correct your mind. My mind needs to be corrected. Extending out from what John meant specifically by these words in verse 27, for they are words to his own disciples to do with Jesus receiving extra attention, we can extend these words out a little bit and apply them this way. Our salvation was gifted to us by God alone. We can receive nothing unless it has been given to us from heaven. We are born from above. Our life. Every day is gifted to us by God alone. Our work is gifted to us by God alone. Our homes, our children, our health, our ministries, our suffering. Is gifted to us by God alone. 
You say, hang on, life, work, home, children, health, ministries, they're all good things. Suffering? Come on. Listen carefully to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you, believer, it has been granted by God the Father, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him. Belief is a gift. That says that. But also to suffer on His behalf. That says that. Both are a gift. Belief and suffering. And so John here watching his own disciples become competitive and resentful of other disciples, the disciples of Jesus, he lays down the antidote to selfish ambition and jealousy and envy and competitiveness that ruins the body. And what it is that he gives in those words is a marked conviction that ministry and influence and impact And life's earthly blessings come from the Father. And when the Father wills it so for that to fade, we must not react by some sort of competitive, heated spirit, thinking things that don't need to be thought, saying things that don't need to be said, and doing things that don't need to be done, but responding with a rested spirit, resting in the fact that God's sovereignty is what undergirds and what is behind all our earthly matters, our life and our ministry. Imagine for a moment John the Baptist wished he was Jesus down the river. If we were to wish that we were someone else and that we wanted the life and ministry of someone else, That would be a grand, special, sort of idolatrous, covetous heart. Which only brings about joylessness. If John the Baptist longed to have the influence that Jesus did, what would have happened? What would have been the result? then he would have missed what God the Father had for him. You and I cannot miss, we cannot afford to miss what God has for us by longing to be someone else. God gifts us each individually. He gifts us each uniquely. To collectively display joy in Jesus. And you know well enough, my dear brothers and sisters, that joy in Jesus is not always a smiling face. You lose your husband. Smile. No. It's not devoid of emotion and pain. It's a deep abiding joy. And the one thing that ensures we are ongoingly filled with that deep abiding joy is humility. That hard thing to attain and once you've attained it, you no longer possess it. Humility. 
Humility is fostered here. We see by resting in God's sovereign hand in life and ministry, apprehending and appropriating that a person can receive nothing. Unless it has been given by God the Father in heaven. Our joy in life and our joy in Christian ministry comes not from competitiveness and envy leading only to a lack of joy. But from rejoicing in the hand of the Father, blessing others. And keeping the main thing, the main thing, the glory of Christ, not our own Glory, the preaching of Christ and not the preaching of ourselves. The Apostle Paul condemned the false teachers for they preached themselves. But the main thing is the glory of Christ and the satisfaction that Jesus Christ alone gives to the soul. We see this exact thing now from John the Baptist in verses 28 to 30. Look at verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses. That's to his disciples. He's still bringing reproof to them. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ. But I have been sent ahead of him, before him. John has already made this very clear. John chapter 1 verse 8, he said, I'm not the light. The light came into the world. He said, I'm not the light. John chapter 1 verse 20, he said, I am not the Christ. John chapter 1 verse 23, he said, I am just a voice. Just a voice. Thrilled with his role. Comfortable in his own skin. Not seeking his own glory, but the glory of another. And how do you do that? You're satisfied and content. In verse 29, John the Baptist now gives a parable, an illustration to bring all of this out. Look at verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John the Baptist is obviously saying there, look, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. He's saying my life and my goal in all of life and ministry is illustrated in that when the bride comes and joins the groom, my job's done. Up until this point, I've been the master of ceremonies. I've been telling people about this wedding, what time this wedding is taking place, and who's going to give what speech. But now, I phase out of the picture altogether, and my work is done. And when they look away from me, and they now look at the groom, my joy is full. That is the heart of the believer's life and ministry. Like John, we are devoted to our ministry 
a ministry with a message of joy and satisfaction for the soul found only in Jesus. And in that ministry, when all attention moves away from us and onto Christ, we are not concerned in the slightest, but our joy is complete. Paul, the apostle, had a bit to say about this. He understood it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. John the Baptist lived this. Back in John chapter 1 verse 15, John the Baptist said, He who comes after me is of higher rank than I. Look at verse 30 now. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's another example of why John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived. Must. You notice that word must? It is God the Father's plan that the Son must continually increase in our lives. That word must is very, very important. Why? It implies that it is God's plan. You remember when Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things? Why must he go to Jerusalem? Because it is the Father's plan. One commentator put that must, said this, quote, it's nothing short of the determined will of God. It's God's plan for Jesus to increase in the life and ministry and heart of every single believer. And I would say this is why beholding the glory of Christ and being satisfied in Christ is, in an ultimate sense, really, the two most important parts of the Christian life. And because we don't ever truly attain to a perfect satisfaction in Christ or because we don't perfectly continually forever behold the glory of Christ we continually need to be reminded over and over about the importance of seeking satisfaction solely and lastingly in Jesus and beholding the glory of Jesus and John's gospel really I'm convinced does that like no other he must increase in our lives Because of some pietistic work where we get to pat ourselves on our back and consider ourselves good Christians as we look at, we have decreased the amount of things that we do, like watching television or sport or whatever it is, and then we start reading our Bibles more and we tick off all the times we've read our Bibles and then in our heart of hearts we, we, we count which one happens more and then we think somehow we're good Christians because we check off a list. No. So that we would bring the Father glory by being satisfied in the Son. Because when satisfaction is our aim, a checklist has no power. Never underestimate the religiosity of our remaining flesh. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't increase in the means of grace, both public and private. But what I'm saying is if you make satisfaction in Christ the goal, 
then everything else will take care of itself. When we are satisfied in the Son and not seeking satisfaction from things in life and ministry, instead, we don't have trouble with joy. Are you lacking joy? You can, for lack of a much better term, bet your bottom dollar that you are not beholding the glory of Christ or finding Him in Him true and lasting satisfaction, but you are seeking satisfaction from things that were never made to satisfy you, like a perfect marriage or perfect children or a perfect job. For Jesus to increase and ourselves to decrease, it means there needs to be an emptying of one and a filling of the other. And I can think of nothing else that strikes at the heart of this than the contrast between the cross and self. The cross represented suffering, shame, and death. Shame because when you were a convicted criminal, you had to drag it through the streets. Suffering because hanging on one of those isn't very pleasant at all. And death because you died of suffocation. That's what the cross represented. What does self represent? Does self want shame? No. It wants honor and esteem and prestige. Does self want to suffer? No. It wants comfort and ease. Does self want to die? No. It wants life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. When we are drawing satisfaction from a good reputation, honor, esteem, comfort and ease, which we do, then we are seeking satisfaction in all the wrong ways. If we seek satisfaction from Christ, then we are willing to suffer shame. And we are willing to endure suffering. And we are even willing to die because our satisfaction is not in being thought of well. Or having a great reputation. John the Baptist had a willingness, didn't he? He went on, we know what happened to him. He confronted political unrighteousness. He spoke into that very thing and he suffered for it. Being imprisoned and executed for it because he was what? Satisfied in Jesus. Our world is going bananas. We must be willing to suffer shame and to suffer even imprisonment and be executed because our satisfaction is not in the applause of this world, but in Jesus. Next time, Lord willing, we'll see a display of divinity. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and give you great thanks for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would take all of this and help all of us, me most certainly, to appropriate all of this. We don't want selfish ambition. We want humility. Lord, humble us where we're proud. It's a scary prayer, but please, Lord, in my heart, do it. Thank you for this precious people. Thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Father, as I pray in preparation, Lord, would you sanctify your precious saints and save those that are lost. In Jesus' name.